One, two, one, two. Nice. Just a fair warning, there are some topics discussed in this video that may make some listeners uncomfortable. Discretion is advised. Hey everyone, my name is Austin, this is Bible and Bound. We're here to discover the biblical epic, and I have seen a lot of movies in my lifetime. Over the course of these cinema viewing years, I've learned to pick up pretty quick what stories I like and what stories I won't like. I can usually tell within probably the first eight minutes of a movie or a TV show if I will like it or not. There are some exceptions, of course, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. I can tell which movies I like and which movies I won't like based off of the opening shot of the movie and knowing just how movies and stories work. You see, the opening shot should always tell you where the hero of the story will get back to. And so, if the opening shot is dark and dreary and hopeless and bitter, chances are the movie will be a continual spiral downward from this moment as tension rises and things get worse and worse and worse for the main character. Uh, you can think of um, Everything Must Go with Will Ferrell or The Founder with Michael Keaton or Schitt's Creek is another good example. They start bad, they get worse, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they'll end super sad. On the other hand, there are movies like, um, I don't know, any franchise ever, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, uh, The Two Popes, anything by Mike Schur, where they start off innocent enough, you know, Frodo is in the Shire, and then they get hard, and sometimes the odds seem impossibly stacked against the hero, but if the movie's going to take the shape of a story, it has to come full circle. And so, you know, everything will be generally okay. But, you know, see, Frodo has to get back to the Shire. This is because of something called the hero's journey. You know, the hero starts at noon in normalcy and peace and slowly moves clockwise into the land of the unknown until she's finally facing her greatest challenge at 6 o'clock. And then she bounces back to 7 o'clock and moves back into the realm of normalcy and peace, finally back to noon. It's a complete circle. Judges is a lot like this in shape. If the hero's journey were three-dimensional, and the hero never actually returns back to normalcy and peace ever, and things get worse for forever and ever. You see, Judges is like the former set of movies. Things start off kind of bad, they're not the worst, but things get worse and worse and worse. Until finally, it ends with what the later biblical authors will often refer to as the worst atrocity committed by Israel. I like to imagine that if, if you were back in the land of the judges, in the time period of the judges, everything would be saturated in this sickly green glow, and rotting dead bodies are being picked at by birds. You see, the book is structured as a giant spiral downward. It's the biblical equivalent of a horror story or Game of Thrones. At the very top, noon, at the beginning, Joshua dies, and there's this power vacuum. Israelite leaders clamor for a central authority, forgetting that God is their king who rescued them out of Egypt, and so the author introduces us to a man named Othniel. Othniel is a great warrior from Judah. The Lord fills him with his Holy Spirit. Othniel's story begins, and he fights the Kushans and wins, and there is peace for 40 years. You see, the story starts off and it's bad, but it's not awful. Because there's no king, the Israelites have completely forgotten about God, but there's peace in the land. After Othniel, 
the Lord raises up Ehud and fills him with his Holy Spirit, and Ehud the Benjaminite assassinates Eglon the Moabite king with a dagger straight through the stomach and cuts him in half, spilling his guts and innards all over the floor. And the Moabites, terrified, are driven away. But, you know, because assassinations always end well in the political sphere of human history, there is no peace in the land. And no king. You see, things are getting worse. And then God chooses Deborah to partner with Barak to defeat the Canaanites in the north. This is even worse, because it shows that there is a true lack of any kind of male leadership within the Israelite nation. God can't even get his voice through to the men. And so Barak, of course, responds with fear when Deborah approaches him. But because the Lord is with Deborah, he's eventually convinced, and they win their fight. But there's no peace, there's no worthy man, there's no king. Things are bad by the time Gideon rolls around. Israel has been taken over by these Mad Max raiders, and the Israelites all live in caves. Gideon is called, and his story reveals that there is a true, real, deep lack of faith within the Israelite mindset. By now, there is no peace, no worthiness, no faith, no makings of any king that anybody would want. And then things are really bad by the time Jephthah comes on scene. You see, Jephthah is called to attack the Ammonites, but instead he decides to send diplomatic negotiations, and those fail. And so he rises and goes to attack the Ammonites by force, although at some point on his journey, he becomes filled with fear, and he begs the Lord to give the Ammonites into his hand, as if God hadn't won any other battle in Israel's history. And then Jephthah sweetens the pot, he says he will sacrifice whatever he meets him when he comes home, as if he wasn't supposed to be making sacrifices regularly anyway. Well, the Lord does defeat the Ammonites through Jephthah, but when Jephthah comes home, he's tested, and his daughter comes to meet him. Scholars have greatly debated over whether he actually did offer her up as a burnt offering, which the text seems to suggest, or if he dedicates her to a life of service in the temple. Either way, the point is clear. The leaders are horrible at showing the people of Israel how to uphold the covenant. There's no peace, no faith, no covenant faithfulness, no one worthy. Certainly no king. After Jephthah's cycle of apostasy, we see Samson, who breaks every single one of his promises to God and he sleeps around with a lot of foreign women. His passions cannot be contained. None of the judges' passions can be contained. And through Samson's story, The Last Judge of Israel, the author highlights the point of the book very clearly. Everyone is doing what seems right to themselves. No one listens to the voice of God and does right in God's eyes. You see, this is a direct reflection on the garden narrative. When Eve sees that the fruit is desirable for knowing right from wrong, and so she takes it, indicating the source of the sinful state of being is one in which humans autonomously do what is right in their own eyes, 
without discerning what is right in God's eyes. After the story of Samson, things are at their ultimate lowest point. When the tribe of Benjamin declares that they no longer want to follow Yahweh alone, but rather several other idols from the attacking nations. Everyone else in the kingdom of Israel is obviously upset at this, and they begin to attack their own people. You see, the Israelites begin to fight a civil war with the Benjaminites. The story climaxes when a Levite, who had a concubine, which was unlawful, takes her back after she committed adultery, which was unlawful, and so he travels a far distance to retrieve her, but on their way back, the Levite and the woman stop in Gibeah, where no one will take them in, which was unlawful, except for a strange old man passing by. When they're in the house of the old man, the Gibeonites break into the house, steal the woman, and rape her. When she's left on the doorstep, bruised and unconscious, the Levite declares that he has no use for her, and so he chops her up into twelve pieces and sends her around to the twelve tribes of Israel. The Gibeonites' actions should remind us of the villagers from Sodom and Gomorrah, indicating that the depravity of Israel has rivaled that of Sodom. And as the book closes, the author reminds us one last time, poignantly and efficiently, there was no king. Not a crown, not a man, certainly not God. There was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Gibeah will later be the village that raises a young boy named Saul, who will become king over Israel. But the legacy of these heinous crimes committed in Israel will only begin to be reversed when King David sits on the throne. Ultimately, the Book of Judges, though having several decentralized main characters, has one main theme that tells us something profound about what the Snake Crusher will come and accomplish. You see, as each judge rises and falls further and further away from what the ideal leader of Israel will be, we see that if anyone is truly going to come and crush the head of the snake, they must not do what is right in their own eyes. The Hebrew phrase for this is Betzachet Hashim, by the will of God. They must act and live by doing what is right in God's eyes alone. You see, hopefully, the snake crusher will struggle with what it means to do what is right in God's eyes and carry out only Yahweh's will, because to be human is to struggle with God's will for our lives. And hopefully, the snake crusher will know what it's like to be human. We can only hope that there will be a point in the snake crusher's life where he prays, Father, would you remove this cup from me? But either way, would your will be done and not my own?
during the violent and tumultuous reign of the judges in a calm meadow outside of Jerusalem sits a young boy named Boaz pasturing his flock of sheep. The year is approximately 1030 BC. The role of the shepherd is not an easy one. The leader of the flock must be both fierce and unwavering as he guides his flock in the right direction while also being gentle and kindly or the sheep won't bleat at the sound of his command. A shepherd must be someone who calms the fears of the sheep when they are worried. He must protect them from evil predators. And most of all, the sheep must trust the shepherd. Boaz, eyes wide, watches as his father Salmon lives out these virtues perfectly. Some scholars believe that Ruth was originally written as an epilogue to the book of Judges. It certainly helps to read it that way. In a time of national adultery and immorality, Ruth bears a shining light like the first day of spring after a long winter. Where the book of Judges holds out the harsh, bitter reality that the Israelite nation found themselves in, the book of Ruth gives us the heartwarming story of an unlikely Moabite woman who will change the course of the nation's history. The Book of Ruth is structured far more like the books and movies that start off in a beautiful field, and things get harder and harder. But you know that eventually they'll end up back in beauty, back in peace, back in normalcy. Because you see, a few fields away from Boaz, in Bethlehem, another man tended his field. The man Elimelech. However, there is a famine in the land, and Elimelech cannot seem to yield any crops. He hasn't been able to for some time. So him, his wife Naomi, and their two sons move south to the hills of Moab, where the two sons marry two Moabites. But during this, Elimelech dies, and so do the two sons, leaving Naomi and her sons' wives Orpah and Ruth to themselves. Because Naomi's husband and sons have all died, Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth they should move back with their families, and Naomi will move back to Bethlehem. Orpah does end up moving back, but Ruth, Ruth stays with Naomi, and they both travel back to Bethlehem, where they find that Elimelech's field has been sold. So, to get money to buy back the field and provide for Naomi, Ruth is sovereignly guided by the hand of Yahweh to work as a gleaner in the field of Boaz, who is now much more grown than in our opening story. Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz like the leader of a great flock, is kind and strong. He falls in love with Ruth, and Ruth falls in love with Boaz. Meanwhile, Naomi is still landless, but if Ruth were to marry Boaz, a relative of Elimelech, Boaz could inherit the land that Elimelech left because of a series of ancient Hebrew laws and customs. This is called redeeming, because you see, Boaz is a man who is righteous, who's just, who's fit to be a leader and to commune with Yahweh, and he's also a redeemer of the land. Hmm. This short book nestled between pillars of strong and ancient rulers sheds light on many of the most prominent themes and ideas within the biblical narrative. 
For one, it's a beacon of God's sovereign guidance and redeeming love for his people and nation. It also goes to show us, the reader, and the people of Israel that God has not forgotten about them, even though they've forgotten about God. God, like Ruth, is willing to work hard to redeem the people back to himself, even if they find themselves landless and without a family to rely on. So it shouldn't be lost on us that in our search for a snake crusher, we come to a book that holds out a woman, the woman of Ruth, as our main character. It's not entirely lost on the biblical authors that the snake crusher could be a woman. After all, the snake crusher could have been an entire nation, like we saw at Sinai, and Genesis 3.15 just says an ambiguous seed will come from the woman. Ruth trusts in the protection of Yahweh when she makes her decision to leave Moab. Ruth trusts in Yahweh when she decides to work in the field of Boaz. Ruth trusts Yahweh when she decides to propose to Boaz by laying at his uncovered feet. A weird story, but we definitely don't have time to get into it. Ruth's faithfulness is admirable, to say the least. It is possible that Ruth would be the snake crusher. But in light of all we've read, it is unlikely. After all, she still remains a Moabite, even after marrying Boaz. It's more likely that the author of the book wants the Israelites reading this to associate themselves with Ruth's faithfulness in contrast it to their faithlessness. And perhaps even see that the enemies of the Israelites, when trusting God, are better quote-unquote Israelites than them when they refused to trust in their creator. Meaning that we should look and associate the characteristics of Boaz to Yahweh and the snake crusher. In chapter 3, when Ruth lays at the feet of Boaz, Boaz says, As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down and rest until the morning. My translation. Boaz's passion-driven kindness is why scholars will often point to the book of Ruth to say that this so beautifully exemplifies the Hebrew concept of chesed. Chesed is a difficult word to translate, but it can mean steadfast love or sometimes loving kindness. It's what Boaz shows to Ruth throughout the book, and what the snake crusher will show to his people when he walks the earth. It seems that the snake crusher will be a manifestation or exemplify perfectly chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, an unwavering, unyielding passion to drive the stake of love and compassion through the head of the snake to redeem and reconcile the people of God back to God. And the chesed shown in the book of Ruth changes the course of the entire nation. For you see, Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse will father David, the king of Israel. And to David, the Lord said, Of your throne there will be no the books of Judges and Ruth paint a beautiful portrait akin to a storm raging over rising seas at sunset on a white beach. The Judges show us the struggle of the Israelite nation to maintain their covenant faithfulness to God and their doubt that God can actually accomplish what he says, namely that he'll bring about a man to crush the head of the snake. And meanwhile... Ruth shows us a warm ray of hope 
that God is faithful and that he will accomplish all that he has set out to do, even through the most unlikely of characters. Even in the darkest days and the quietest of silences, God's ever-faithful, ever-present love breaks through the clouds and into our lives. We will, of course, have to wait to see if the snake crusher will do the same. But if I were a betting man, I'd wager to guess that he will do just that. Boaz did that. He offered a ray of hope and joy and salvation to the down and outcast, even in the midst of the dark days of the judges. And Ruth did not trust in her own idea of right and wrong, but even as a Moabitess trusted in Yahweh's place as God and sovereign protector. You see, both Ruth and Boaz, they looked at God and said, Thy will be done. Thank you so much. My name is Austin. This was Bible Unbound, and we'll see you next week.